Ladies and gents, welcome to the Shroom Live podcast. I'm Shroom. This is another episode in the Brim Fishing series of the Level 1 Angler. Level 1 because you now know what you want to do with it. You want to take it to the next step. You want to brush up on your brim fishing skills in particular. You can be a complete novice or you can be someone that's been fishing for a while and you just want to get up to terms and par with everything that's happening in the fishing world, particularly brim fishing. As we know, it's one of those species that has given people a lot of thought over the years because they're not the easiest species to tempt. Okay, now, just for those that have found this episode first before the other ones, there are 13 previous episodes that you can check out, but make sure you check out the very first one. Basically, that one is termed the level zero angler. We absolutely know nothing at all, and you just want to get started with fishing from the very first thing. Okay, now, on today's agenda, we've got two questions that viewers have sent in. And now, before I mention those, make sure you let me know if you have any questions to drop it down in any of my socials or in a YouTube video, for example, or even if you're listening on a podcast, if there's a place where you can send me a question that you'd like answered on this series, get that through because if you guys want to hear more about this, I'm going to continue this series for as long as you guys like to hear it. And of course, there are also the species podcasts that I've been transitioning to, or at least getting back into. And yeah, make sure you check this out in the video format as well. So available in audio and video. Okay, so Ben Gillespie sent me a question and he wants to know about tying leaders to lures. He says, nice video, man. Question for your next podcast when tying leader to lure, jig head or hard body, loop knot or uni knot, and why in place of the other? All right, so first of all, let's just answer the direct question right here and say that if I'm just going to answer this question shortly, I'm going to say 90% of the time, I'm using a uni knot. And that should answer that question there. Now, let's take this a little bit deeper and explain and understand everything about this whole concept because A, it's not just about the uni knot and B, there are merits to using the loop knot. So I'm going to reframe this question and say, look, if the question becomes loop styled knots, so we're talking lefties loop, perfection loop, for example, and there's probably a host of other ones, but they're the two that I that I use versus non-looping terminal knots. So they're your traditional terminal knots, such as the one he mentioned, the uni knot, because A, that's the one I use. Uh, there's also plenty of other ones, half blood knot, palomar, you know, the list goes on. So these ones are non-looping and they cinch right up snug against say, the split ring or the jig head eyelet. And so they prevent movement. At least that degree of freedom is heavily inhibited. Okay, so my thoughts on that, I generally find like non-looping terminal knots to be stronger and more reliable. Now, that's my personal experience. Maybe that's different to you, but the rationale that I'm presenting here is that I've obviously tried using looping term, uh, looping terminal knots, in particular the perfection loop and the lefties loop, but I always gravitate back towards, say, a simple uni knot because I find them to basically not snap on me or break apart under pressure, especially when I'm catching a really nice fish. 
And so that's reason number one. Now, mitigating circumstances, I'm definitely better at tying the uni knot because I'll probably tie about 100 uni knot to every single loop knot that I tie. So that's definitely going to help with reliability and strength and, you know, confidence as well. Confidence is a big issue when you hook onto a good fish. If you hook onto a good brim, for example, how much pressure can you put for that fraction of a second as it tries to dive into a snag? That depends on how confident, how much faith you have in that knot to hold onto those incredible spikes of pressure. So that's from my experience, the same line strength. These knots just break seemingly, at least for me, under high loads. Now, let's also look at it from the other side's point of view, from the loop knot standpoint. So why and when would you use a loop knot? So the first thing, the main reason why you use a loop knot is A, you want the lure to have that sort of freedom of movement right at the jig head or the hard body right at the eyelet so that it's got more sway, it's got more movement, it frees up that, you know, that degree of freedom. So generally what I find for plastics, if I'm talking about a paddle tail, for example, a loop knot does free up the head side to side swaying action. And, you know, a lure isn't basically just about the tail. So soft plastics, most definitely, a lot of it is to do with the tail movement, the side to side kicking of the T tail, the wriggler, you know, the wriggler slash grub curled tail kind of like whipping around and spiraling. Well, at least it, the sensation is that it gives that sort of, that sort of look in the water. Now, especially for the T tails, they will sway side to side and they can have a body roll action. And action is action, so it will make it look more realistic and be more enticing to a fish. So that's why you may potentially want to loosen and have that degree of freedom available. Now, if I'm talking about something like a, maybe like a flick bait, I think that that's probably less likely to have an impact on its action, given that it's just a, an erratic side to side darting action. I mean, it might allow to dart at more, say, uh, acute angles on the flicks. But other than that, that's pretty much summarizing like the main shapes that you'll see for hard bodies. And I can't really see it having an impact on, say, a creature bait like a, like a yabby or, or something like that that you work on the bottom. So if you can see, at least for in terms of a plastics sort of perspective, that you can open up that degree of freedom and it could potentially help. That's a good reason why a loop knot may be viable in that situation. Now, let's talk about hard bodies. Hard bodies I find to be an interesting prospect because hard bodies generally have a much stronger vibration than a soft plastic. Not always, but I'm thinking about things such as deep divers, which you can certainly feel on the rod tip. Uh, any Anyone that ties on a deep diving crank and just starts winding slowly, you'll definitely see that your rod tip vibrates. Not only can you feel it, in other words, like a soft plastic, you can't really, in most situations, you can't really feel the action of the lure. 
I mean, unless you're using really light lines and a heavy sort of kicking action on a plastic, you can't sense it that easily. But with hard bodies, it's all about getting that feedback. You're getting that vibration that's really strong going through the water and it's traveling up the braid and it's so strong that it, make, it, that it makes your rod tip even bounce, you know, in sync with that. So, that's where a loop knot is even more effective in my opinion. So, with a snug knot, what could happen is you're dulling that sensation and I actually know some people that actually prefer to have a snug knot on say a bladed lure. So, because it's a level one angler series, so a blade is simply just one of those lures that looks like a flat piece of metal and it's basically all in two dimensions. It looks like a, basically it just looks like a lure that's printed on a flat piece of metal and cut out into some shape that looks like a little bait fish. Now, because of the thinness of a lure type like that, like a blade specifically, which is metal bodied and very thin, you're going to get probably the strongest vibration out of any lure type that you could get. And sometimes dulling that sensation with a snug knot can help it. Like I, I know some people that just want to dull that sensation and that's what they do. They tie just a regular knot and they'll take off you know, the hardware that comes with it so that it will be snug up against the lure. Now, I want to mention here that I've just kind of alluded to it without mentioning it and that's the split ring. So at the toe point, so the toe point is where you tie the lure, you know, to your leader or you tie your leader to the lure, sorry. The toe point, that's sort of where you may or may not find on hard bodies the presence of a little metal ring and, you know, that's the split ring. So in cases where you have split rings, you don't need a loop knot. In fact, it's probably to its detriment that you have a loop knot in a place with a split ring. Now, anyway, firstly, let's address the first question is why can or how can you and why would you just tie a, a regular knot, you know, a snug terminal to a split ring? That's because the split ring already gives you that degree of freedom of the hard body moving its side to side with that. So adding another point of degree of freedom isn't really going to help it anyway. And in fact, some people have now found, well, I guess people, you know, people have found this out in the last, you know, several years that if you tie a split ring, let, let's rephrase, if you tie a loop knot, like a perfection loop to a split ring, you've got two loops going. And because of that movement, it is possible, although quite rare, that the loop can make its way around the split ring and you can lose the lure on the retrieve. Now, personally, that hasn't happened to me, but I have seen a few cases where I brought it back in and the loop knot has sort of just wedged in between where the split ring might allow it to, if it traveled through the loop, to eventually end up detaching from my, my line. So, so in that case, you just want to tie a knot that won't move per se. Now, that there probably basically just summarizes my thoughts on, you know, loop knots versus 
you know, the snug styled knots such as the uni knot. Now, for those people who do want to use, you know, a loop, you, you know, at least have some advantage with the movement, but you still don't really want to tie a loop knot. You can tie a uni knot. So, a uni knot, when you pull it up tight, snug up against the eyelet, you can sort of just pull it back a bit with your hands and give it, you know, just a few millimeters of space and it will function as a bit of a loop knot. Now, obviously, if you come up tight to something, it just pulls down snug straight away, but you can, in a pinch, just loosen that loop, uh, that uni knot and it will function as a sort of loop knot in that instance. So, it's kind of like the best of both worlds. I sometimes do loosen it, but like I said, 90% of the time, I'm going straight with the uni knot as short, you know, as a short answer to that question. And if I need a loop knot, it's going to be in a situation where it doesn't have a split ring. So, it doesn't give me that degree of freedom and I have to introduce it with the loop knot itself and I tie a lefty's loop. Okay, next question on the agenda comes from Andre J351. He sent this through one of the polls that I put up on Spotify. So, thank you very much for that. I've got a few comments through there and I obviously haven't been paying too much attention but I caught this one. So, yeah, just another avenue if you guys want to get questions in, put it down there too. I'll be reading about it and I'll probably put it with this post as well. Anyway, his question says, how to deal with different conditions? I remember you talked a bit about wind. I'm just getting started and tried fishing under a bridge recently and the cross current gave me grief. All right, so by cross current, probably cross winds or potentially the wind going in one direction and the current going in the opposite direction. So, let's address the concept of wind first. So, wind in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It is good and it is bad. So, the good. It's good for bait fish movement and bait just getting pushed around in the water column. It creates a dynamic situation where fish want to come in and investigate because the water is churning up the bottom or churning up the edges where the bait fish might be and causing them to basically get mixed in and so the fish are going to come in for a feed. It also creates cover for fish, particularly in the daytime. In the daytime, in most situations, if you have no wind, it's very flat and with the sun up high, you can basically spot fish pretty, pretty far up through the water column but even a little bit below that. Once you throw a little bit of wind, constant chop, suddenly you can't really see through too much and it's all ripply and you know this to be true because if you're spotting, say, bust-ups, for example, it's very hard to see any sort of splashing or even a little bit of bait or prawns flicking out towards the middle because the current basically masks it. So, that's the good about wind. It could bring on the bite. Now, the bad thing is that in terms of the ability for you to get across what you need to do to get that lure working and manage your line, that is, in, it can be a little bit, little bit more difficult to almost nearly impossible. So, there's obviously like a limit to how much wind one could put up with. I'd say in most situations, once you have a wind which is kind of blowing your hair around a bit and your shirt 
it's kind of like moving in the wind like a flag. That's probably a bit too strong for most anglers, but a little bit of wind can be good. So I'd learn to fish with it and, and here are some ways that you can. So first of all, actually, first of all, let's talk about the wind direction first. So besides from the strength, the direction, if you have a tailwind, that means the wind is coming from behind your back, over your shoulder. I find in most situations that that's not too bad because you get a longer cast and if you cast out in front of you, you're still getting that straight line from your rod tip straight down to the lure. So that's generally not a problem for most anglers. I haven't really seen any complaints about that. The second type of wind is headwind and that's when it's coming the opposite 180 degrees towards your face coming from the front and a lot of anglers do hate that because it's uncomfortable and it makes them feel as though they're casting the lure and it's getting blown straight back into their face. But I would say that's the next best wind. So after a tailwind, I prefer the headwind. So the headwind is the one where you want to fish sometimes in some of the shallower areas or even in areas where you think that bait might con congregate because it's bringing that close to you. It's blowing everything towards your side. The other side might feel better fish you know like feel like it's a a bit better fishing but really it's not the headwind side is where you're going to find the predators now the worst types of wind would a be the side wind that's when it's coming from either your left or your right and it's hard to position it because once you cast out your lure is going to fly x amount of meters to the side and the bow in the line so the bow in the line is when the line isn't like a direct straight line to your lure, it has to cur curve around quite a bit. That's what kills your success rate because any sort of bites will not travel through a line that's got so much bow in it. So that's sort of why you don't want the side win. Now, current can play a big factor in all these situations, but Let's just say that we're not getting like raging current with raging wind because I think most people are not going to go out and fish in cyclones and, you know, massive floods and all that. Although, I mean, everyone's definitely tried, definitely tried. But yeah, you, you really, you know, in those situations, that's exceptional. So we'll just talk about the general situation with those sorts of winds. So how do you deal with this? A, like I said, the, the tailwind is the best followed by the headwind. So I would naturally try to position my body against the wind in a way that I'm casting with it or against it. Now, let's say that it's not coming directly behind you, but it's coming from the side. So what you could do is you could turn your body and cast diagonally either with it. So if it's coming from my, say, right shoulder, I'll turn to my left and I'll cast in that direction. And that greatly negates the angle of the line. The bow in the line is reduced so much if you do that. Even just a slight movement, you're doing a lot. Now, it may not feel like much, but you can catch a lot of fish that way. Number two, against it. If it's coming, say, directly from the front at an angle, turn your body against it and cast in front of it in that way. I wouldn't cast sideways. Uh, sorry, I wouldn't cast straight in front because it's going to get taken with a sideways movement. I'll turn my body into the wind and cast into the wind. And that might take a few meters off my cast, 
but it's going to have that excellent connection to the lure. And I can definitely feel bites in that situation. So I don't mind that. That's a good sort of wind. Now, let's say that you, you simply can't use the wind to your advantage, or at least you can't sort of negate its effect in that way. What could you do? It's a complete side wind. It's blowing like 90 degrees. It's doing your head in. What could you do? Okay, first of all, this is what you could do. A, use a slightly heavier jig head. If you're using 1 16th ounce, which is the general purpose size that I use in most situations, go 1 12th. A 1 12th feels so much heavier. If, you, if you're like me and you're using 1 16th all the time, I can close my eyes, have some entire lure on and cast and I'll say, yep, that's 1 12th. I can feel it's about twice as heavy. It's not twice as heavy. It's only a little bit more. Now, what is 1 16th? Say it's about 1.8 to 2 grams. 1 12th, 2 point, I don't know, 2.2 grams or something. 2 grams to 2.2, let's say. I could be wrong here, but it's only a little bit heavier. It's about, say, half a gram heavier, I think. But it feels twice as heavy. That's because you're using light leaders and light line. And it can take that line. It can take that braid and drag it through the wind and current and get to the bottom. You get that extra few meters. It's holding more stable in the water, etc., etc. So that's one thing you could do. If you're absolutely under the pump with the wind, you can still go higher. You can go to a one eighth ounce if you're on land. Maybe even a quarter ounce if you're really desperate. One eighth is sort of where I draw the line. That's when I start to feel like, you know, this is probably one of those days where I probably should move spots and try to, you know, allow the wind to dictate where I may be fishing. But it is possible to still go heavier. And there are certain situations where I would use a quarter ounce with a tiny two-inch lure. And, you know, they're more specialized. But yeah, definitely go up. I'll go one twelfth first. Then I'll go one eighth, And then depending on the situation, I'd go a quarter. But generally, I won't. But I have been known to do so. Number two. Line lay. Actually, that's number three now. So we talked about positioning yourself. You know, it's a positional game. Number two, we're talking about changing the gear to address the situation. Number three is a technique-based ones, and that's line lay on the water. So what I mean by line lay on the water, it means that the wind can only affect what it can blow. It can't affect line that's already lying on the water, laying on the water, it can't blow the water in that way. It can only create chop. It's not going to, you know, like wind's not going to reverse the tide, if that makes sense. If the, if the current's going one direction, yeah, it's going to do a little bit of that, you know, that choppy action on the surface, but 99% of the water is going that direction that the current wants to go. So what can you do with that? Well, you can cast and then once you've cast, let that line settle along the water and you'll notice that suddenly the wind is not in the equation anymore. The, te- the surface tension of the water is so strong that it will overcome this wind for you. Okay, now this does rely on the current, you know, playing ball and being in your favor. So obviously, if you, you know, you, you go out towards the coast and you're casting off a headland, yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, but, you know, if you're fishing inside the river and it's, you know, running in or running out and it's moving X amount of, you know, meters per second, 
yeah, you can certainly make do by just laying along the surface and that will take out the the effect of the wind. So what you do is once you've cast, try to whip or at least push your rod tip down so that the line will touch the water. Once it's touched the water, you can kind of like wind in and get it taut and you'll notice that it's it's now fine. You can certainly fish that and then fish with a rod tip down action or at least try to keep that line after your action, after your hops and your lifts back onto the water. Okay, and number four, this is the, the final thing that I can think of uh, that I do personally if I have a strong wind situation, that's casting lower to the water. So a normal cast for me would be I raise my rod tip out in front of me diagonally and then I whip it over my shoulder and then I whip it out in front. It'll fly at, a say, a 45-degree angle through the sky towards, say, the moon and then at some point it's going to you know, lose speed and dip down, hit the water. That creates a huge bow in the line, but in most situations, it's not a problem unless the wind is coming sideways. So what do I do with that? So A, cast lower to the water, lower trajectory. So instead of casting 45 degrees, cast 30 degrees, maybe even go 20 degrees. Another way to do this is to put in a side cast. So ins- instead of putting the rod tip over your shoulder, whipping it out in front, put it out to your right shoulder, put it out to your left shoulder, and then whip it sideways. That will definitely cut into the amount of bow you're going to in the- that you're going to get in the line because A, I find that side casts stay in the air not nearly as long as a regular conventional over-the-shoulder cast, and B, you can position it into the, into the correct angle to negate the wind. Say, for example, it's coming from the right. Well, I can belt it from my left shoulder. That's going to keep it straight because I'm kind of going against the wind with the direction of the cast because I'm whipping it from my left corner right to my right corner. Okay, so thanks for the question, on Andre J351 and Ben Gillespie. Now... I've, I'd like to finish off this podcast now, so hopefully that helps. That's another. That's number 14 in the Level 1 Angler series about brim fishing. If you've got any questions, if you want anything answered, go to any of my socials, go to any YouTube video, just drop a comment and say, look, I've got a question for the Level 1 Angler podcast, and I'll get to it. And also, about the species podcasts, and you'd like to come on the show, send me a message. I'd love to have you on. Uh, But yeah, for now, hope you guys enjoyed this one. This is Ashroom signing out.